Korea has not been the only battleground since the end of the Second World War. Men have fought and died in Malaya, in Greece, in the Philippines, in Algeria, and Cuba, and Cyprus, and almost continuously on the Indo-Chinese Peninsula. No nuclear weapons have been fired. No massive nuclear retaliation has been considered appropriate. This is another type of warfare, new in its intensity, ancient in its origin, war by guerrillas, subversives, insurgents, assassins, war by ambush instead of by combat, by infiltration instead of aggression, seeking victory by eroding and exhausting the enemy instead of engaging him. It is a form of warfare uniquely adapted to what has been strangely called wars of liberation. To undermine the efforts of new and poor countries to maintain the freedom that they have finally achieved. It preys on economic unrest and ethnic conflicts. It requires in those situations where we must counter it. You may hold a position of command with our special forces, forces which are too unconventional to be called conventional, forces which are growing in number and important and significant. And these are the kinds of challenges that will be before us in the next decade. If freedom is to be saved, it requires a whole new kind of strategy, a wholly different kind of force, and therefore a new and wholly different kind of military training. to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special guest on with me today, uh, retired U.S. Army Sergeant Major Chris Dutch Moyer. Uh, how's it going? John, it goes well, man. Thanks very much for having me. It's my honor. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. And uh, looking forward to being grilled by <laughs> IG Recon Master. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it, you know, it's, um, it's great to have you on here. We have a lot to talk about. You were you were in the military for a long time, done a bunch of you know great things in the in the army, and uh, you know we'll try and walk through some of that. So so how long were you in the army total? Uh, Thirty one years total for pay. I took a took a small break in service, and I stayed affiliated with uh, National Guard elements. So that that's why I say for pay. For, uh, for the folks out there that are listening that are savvy to what I'm saying. But 26 years of regular Army service, 31 years really when it comes down to everything. But so so uh, E9 over 31 years, that's, that's how long it took me from A to, a to Z. Awesome. And, and and you served in a number of different roles. Um, You know, if we can, I'd like to walk through some of it. Uh, if we could start with, like, what motivated you to join the Army in the first place? That's uh, it's a great question. With you know, the way I remember it as a kid, uh, I grew up on a heavy dose of Vic Morrow and the series called Combat. And if you've never seen that, you know, check it out. I'm sure it's on YouTube or Netflix somewhere in the archives of all that we have in, in the Internet world. But uh, I was, uh, you know, I was born in 1964. So. So in the 70s, I'm watching war movies, man. It's, I watched uh, The Dirty Dozen and. I watched the Clint Eastwood movies and even with the spaghetti westerns and and the Dirty Harrys and whatever it was. If I couldn't have been a soldier, I was going to be a police officer, no doubt. But I, I just from the very beginning, man, I always wanted to be some sort of gunslinger, I guess. Uh, when I was a kid, I I built dioramas of tanks and men and I studied World War Two and I loved airplanes. So I I would purchase model airplanes and glue them all together and paint them all up. Nice. Uh, you know, I remember having a conversation with my dad. I showed him a, a, a German dive bomber, the Ju-87 
Stuka, the feared Stuka dive bomber, and it had a big snake painted on it from its nose to its tail. And I said, hey, Dad, isn't this a beautiful airplane? And, he's, you know, he's trying to do the right thing as a dad because I was probably, you know, what, five, I bet. <laughs> and he said, he said, son, it's, it's a war machine, so it's not beautiful. But <laughs> yet here, here, here I am. <laughs> so, yeah, I always, always wanted to be a soldier, man, ever since the little, you know, I – Kids in the neighborhood made fun of me for for playing uh, war with other kids, climb, climbing trees, running around with a plastic forty five caliber, you know, nineteen eleven, and that was uh, that's what I wanted to do forever. And what year was it that you joined the army? I joined the army in nineteen eighty one via the delayed entry program. That meant my first days in the army were going to be nineteen eighty two, right when I graduated uh, high school. When I signed up for the army, my mom and dad had to sign a piece of paper saying it was okay because I was only seventeen. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I always had that idea and I'll tell you what, I read a book later on called gratitude by uh, William Buckley. And he talks about the gratitude that we all should have, or he, and he had for our founding fathers and the men that came before us and fought and died and fought and struggled and bled for our nation. And I always grew up with that, that mindset, you know, I have this, you call it, you know, I don't know. Is it corny? Whatever you might want to call it. Jingoistic patriotism, whatever. I, I always wanted to be a soldier and I always wanted to give back to those men that came along before us. And uh, so that's how, that's how I thought about it in the first place. Yeah, you know, it's it's pretty awesome because, you know, I asked that question to different people who come on and and some people kind of just, you know, ended up where they were not really planning it. And then some people just kind of really thought about it before they, they took the path that they took. And, um, you know, I always find it like, I'm kind of a history geek myself. So, uh, you know, that, that what people kind of find boring, just, I find it exciting and interesting. Um, you know, especially when you're talking about like world war two and, and some of, um, you know, the conflicts of the past and then, uh, you know, what, what was written about it and what was learned from it and that kind of thing. Um, so after you joined the army, uh, what was what was the first thing that you ended up uh, doing there? Ever since, like I said before, ever since I was a kid, I wanted to join, but I wanted to be a tanker. I loved tanks. I loved machinery. I did when I was a high schooler. I did term papers on Erwin uh, Rommel, the German field marshal, and I also did term papers on on George Patton. And I liked the combined effort war, the Blitzkrieg. You know, combined arms, yeah, tanks, men, aircraft. I liked it all. So I wanted to be a tank commander. So I joined uh, the tank corps and that's what I did first. It was in, in the army. It's the 19 series for a military occupational specialty. And I was a 19 echo. So I'm an armored crewman for the M60 a one and M60 a three tanks, which got phased out in probably 86. Uh, when I was in Germany in 86, we were transitioning over to the M one and I decided that, uh, the tank corps was no longer big enough for me. I wanted to go be an infantryman. <laughs> so you you um, you re-enlisted at that point as an 11 Bravo? or? Yeah, uh, I actually got out of the Army for a short amount of time, and I stayed affiliated with the Army through uh, the reserves. I did a, a small, a quick stint in uh, Pennsylvania National Guard as an armor crewman, but Again, like I said, I saw the future of land warfare becoming smaller. It was low-intensity conflict. It was dirty wars. Right. Uh, of course, I blew it completely when I I predicted that, but then the, the Gulf War came and went. But uh, that, that thing was over in two weeks. But the uh, I went to 19th Special Forces Group out of West Virginia, uh, hung out there for a little while, and through an odd series of, hey, I lost all your paperwork, Sergeant Moyer, you can't do anything about it. So – I decided to prepare for special forces. I thought I could, I thought I could get back in as part of what was called the bear program. Uh, you forgive me when I don't remember the, the entire acronym, but it was some sort of uh, reenlistment program where you could keep your rank and you could go back into the army as a special forces candidate. And uh, long story short, that didn't work out for me either. Although I prepped for it, I was, I went to scuba school and I went to, I jumped out of airplanes as a civilian and I thought, well, this is, I'll prep by doing all this stuff, you know, but in the end it didn't work out and I ended up getting uh, lucky and getting a Ranger contract. Okay. So then you, you went into the Ranger Battalion and, um, and were you there for a, a while or? 
Yeah, 92 through 99. Okay. Okay. So then uh, now now you're in special operations in the Ranger. Uh, and then, and, and this is before, obviously, before the global war on terror really, really kicked off. Um, so then you became an operator after that? Yeah, in 1999, you saw, uh, you know, the... I think the natural progressive, sorry, the natural professional progression was to go test yourself. You know, as a man tests his metal. So I became a leader in the Ranger Battalion. I did my Ranger school. I did my jungle training. We went to the desert. We did all the stuff that you do as a as a young Ranger. And I saw it as, you know, my my own personal journey, but also as a as a professional soldier. What's what's next? So for me, what next was uh, you know, uh, recruiters came down and said, Hey, do you want to try this? I said, uh, I would love to try that. So, so it was an opportunity to go deeper into the JSOC community as a, as an operator. And I, I took a chance. So, you know, at the time that you joined special operations, um, you know, the, uh, this, like I said before, the global war on terror hadn't kicked off yet. Uh, but then, you know, the past, uh, but 17 years now, or you know, 16 and a half, uh, has been called by some or or many as kind of the golden age of special operations. You know, with with people saying that, referring to the um, kind of the op temple, and uh, you know, the amount that special operations guys are being utilized to fight this uh, global war on terror. You were in special operations before that, and then you served for a long time during that. Can you talk about some of the differences before and during? Yeah, it's a, it's a cool question too, because it's kind of complex. Uh, you might not think it is, but it can be. Um, so I'm the Rangers prior to 9-11, certainly, and you did what Rangers do. You what Well, back then, you did what Rangers do. You know, we specialized in recons, ambushes, uh, long road marches, of course, static line parachuting, uh, liberal use of ammunition over known distance ranges, uh, anti-tank weapons, mortars, snipers. You know, it was a great place for these young guys to be motivated and to grow up in, uh, grow up professionally as a soldier, but obviously grow up in the Ranger Battalion as well and inside of the Special Operations Command. Um, but again, like you said, it's all training. You know, you go to Egypt, you're going to training. You go to Panama, you're going to training. You go to uh, Thailand for Cobra Gold, you're going to training. So whether it was Bright Star, Panama, or Cobra Gold, or wherever it might be, it was training. Uh, and to complicate things further, just before I came on board, right, was Desert Storm, which I missed. So some of the NCOs that I was paired with when I was a young ranger were already combat-hardened in Desert Storm if they saw combat. And then even prior to that, though, you had guys that were senior guys that were already Panama jumpers. And then even before then you had one or two guys still left in first battalion that were Grenada Raiders and yeah. Panama jumpers as well. So now you had, you know, but, but still that that's the post. So these guys know what they're talking about. They know what they're doing. They've seen this before, even though it was a, it might've been a quick trip. It's still combat related experience. And it's obviously makes you uh, a better force when you can learn from these guys. And then, but yeah, there's a long time of peace and training, training, training and peace, peace, peace. Got it. So that's when I made you know, the decision to go somewhere else. And uh, I was successful in that. Uh, but then getting getting somewhere else farther too, you had different missions and, and uh, more training. And you, you mentioned it was funny too, because you mentioned the golden age. So the, certainly during the George W. Bush era, uh, POTUS, George W. Bush, we did a lot of stuff. There was a lot. It was the heavy moments after 9-11, whether it was Afghanistan or Iraq. It was a lot of heavy work. And you're right. It was kind of the golden age of special operations. I even spoke with this about uh, spoke to this subject with someone else just today. Uh, they were thinking, oh, it must have been better back in the 80s. Uh, and no, there was a lot of crap going on in the 80s. It wasn't so hot. But right. uh, certainly the George W. Bush era and right after Right before and right after 9-11, all the way up to, hell, now still, 
yeah. is probably the golden age. And, you know, more and more of these theaters rely on special operations and special operators all across the globe. You see it now. It's all the time. It's across the globe. It's just all those those uh, those guys were killed in uh, Africa just recently. Right. Um, you know, contractors getting killed in Jordan. Uh, obviously, what's going on in northern Iraq and Syria. Uh, there's Americans everywhere. So and most of them are special operators. So whether they're Marines, whether Air Force, Army, Navy, they're they're out there, right? Special operations are absolutely the tip of the spear today. Right, and and um, you know, with, with the uh, fight against this ideology that is a global threat, that would mean that these you know special operations forces are deployed all around the globe, not just in training, but in combat or and some kind of role where they're countering a group. And um, some of these groups have different names. Uh, some of them are in different geographical locations, but ultimately they have uh, a connection, whether it be like a loose connection or kind of a strong connection uh, to each other. And ultimately they would, they have this idea that they're going to rule the world or something like that, something to that effect. So, there's been papers written and people have talked about it um, where they say in, in some instances, special operations forces are in danger of kind of getting burned out because it's such a small percentage of the military, but they are constantly deploying, you know, deploy, come home for a little bit, maybe do some training and then go back. Um, and, um, you know, you have guys with, you know, over 10 de double digit deployments, you know, 10 deployments, even 15 and um, is that something that, that you've heard about or, or thought about before, you know, the kind of the forces getting burned out a little bit? Sure it is. And well, I, I tell you what, you got me? Yeah, I got you. Uh, did we disappear for a second, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right, cool. I can, I can re-answer that question. So, uh, uh, what did you end with? Do you remember? Sorry. Yeah, just, just, uh, you know, asking if, if the you burnout. Yeah, right. The burnout stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So really, the the burnout is real. Sure, it is. But I'll submit to you that the burnout could be real in training as well. Okay. Um, you know, there's a. <laughs> it was funny. I just watched episode one or episode two of the Navy SEAL show just the other day. I okay. think they're on episode nine or 10, but I just watched it. And one of the comments by one of the wives or the main character, I don't even know his name. Uh, he's having trouble with his wife. They don't, they don't, they talk to each other because they have kids, but they don't see each other anymore. They're either separated or divorced one. And she said, look, even when you were here, you weren't here. Well, let me tell you who's heard that, that exact, the exact quote. I said, Holy cow. They've been talking <laughs> to people I know. Cause that that's, it's funny, but that's exactly right. So yeah. it takes, it's just a hard life and it takes a fine line and it's uh, it's none of that's easy, man. It's, and some, some of the women get burned out. Certainly some of the men get burned out, you right. know, after four or five years of training, where do they want to go somewhere else? Young Rangers would come up to me and say, Hey, four or five years of this, I'm done. You know, the train moves so hard. The commander, no matter what unit it is during peacetime, that commander runs hard, man. He's there for two years and the troopers are there for much longer than that. So, you know, that, that commander gets up there, he whips them and they go hard. And that's just the nature of the beast. You know, you got to go hard for as long as you're as long as you're able, I guess, is what, what I, I guess I'm pointing out. But, yeah. So when it comes to combat and the deployments, yes, that you can reach a state of burnout, too. Think about the special operator who goes to JSOC and he was or he's graduated rather from Rangers or from SF to a different level. He's already done three or four deployments as a Ranger guy. Right. And now he's now he's going even harder as, as the next operator. So it's it's uh, yeah, there's burnout. But you know what? The unit, the unit commands are smarter. We're doing protecting of the force right now. We do protection of the force, um, whether through spiritual or physical wellness. They do it both, man. They do it all. And they're right. getting really good at it. I remember I gave a couple of different speeches about that. I was uh, I was injured, actually not wounded. I was injured severely. In a training accident. So when I overcame that, you know, they're asking me, Hey, well, how do you, how do you recover from this? How do we do this? How do we recover from that? Um, you know, it starts with mental toughness. It's good leadership. 
Uh, it's knowing how far you can whip your men. And, uh, you know, you give them rewards too. So, okay, so you you work super hard all week and then you work hard on Thursday night and you work all through the night because you're doing that's That's the hit on Thursday night, whatever you're doing. And then uh, maybe you have to grab all the equipment and you have to find the weapons of mass destruction, whatever you might have to do or the hostage or whatever. And right there is also these six cases. I want you to pick up these cases and, and drag them to the extra uh, extraction site, blah, blah, blah. And then when you do that, uh, you find out that in the cases are a bunch of cold beer. And then nice. almost, and then, you know, then the, the good leader says, hey, the, you know, extraction is over. You know, you know, your weekend starts now. Uh, you know, team leaders look after your men, have a couple beers, get get some breakfast, you know, clean up your stuff and make sure everybody's accountable and then, you know, get the hell home. But that that does happen. You know, there's within these tribes of men, uh, there's a lot of hard work and there's a lot of hard, good camaraderie that comes along with it. So, yeah, there's burnout. Yeah, there is. And I would submit to you that they're trying to trying to mitigate the as much burnout as you can, because in the end, man, in the end, your the numbers don't change much. Right. The numbers really don't change much of shooters. We can create more battalions and more units and more sections and blah, blah, blah. But in the end, the, the number of shooters doesn't change much because the, num- the percentage of people who are willing to do this kind of work doesn't really change much. Right. You're not going to get – even if there's a – even if there's another terrorist attack as, as big as September 11th, God help us that there isn't. But even if there would be – and you have an influx of servicemen, for instance, like what happened in 1941 in Pearl Harbor or, or when yeah. America joined the war. Yeah, you might have an influx of recruits, but the percentage that's going to go to do the worst possible things in the worst possible conditions with the best possible people, that number doesn't change much at all. Free, you know, very fractionally it'll change, but that's about it. Right, and, and um, you know, even if you put more, I guess, more guys on selections – uh, it, it's still difficult to get through there, and I guess that that doesn't change either. Yeah, the the numbers. It's funny the numbers don't lie now because again, here is a a job that we're asking you to do, and it's very difficult. Okay, well, that's that's it then. So you know, only only some of the men are going to be the the cockle shell heroes. Only a couple of those guys are going to you know go fight the guns and have our own. But you know, only some of them are going to you know, join the OSS. It's just it's right. the way it, it's the way it is, man. It's the way it is. I learned that lesson uh, quite some time ago, actually, from uh, from an English commission officer, and he was quite bright. So it, it was uh, very interesting. So you, you mentioned that um, you know you were severely injured uh, during training, uh, and and you you this is during your career, right? Like during your yeah. operational service. Yeah. Okay, and. Um, so now I want to ask you, you know, being in, in special operations for as long as you have been, you know, at the tip of the spear, so to speak, uh, you know, all of this stuff is exhausting. The training, the deployments, uh, you know, coming back from an injury is not not easy to do. Um, you know, what can we talk just about a little bit about the mindset that's required to keep you at the top of your game for so long? Wow, that's a good question, too, man. It's uh, uh mental toughness you know that's the biggest thing just the other day uh, a young man reached out to me uh via our company whatever and he said hey i'm thinking about going this path as a uh, infantry ranger blah 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 what what do you what what would you like to recommend to me and you know because i'm i don't like to type that's one thing but <laughs> it's always better to talk to these folks you right. know face to face right or or via voice and i said hey give, give, here's my number give me a call so I talked to him. He's a young 17-year-old. He's going to go to the infantry and he's going to go to the ranger route. And I told him the very first thing, man, you can – have you ever seen the show's Jackass? And, of course, everybody has. You've seen at least snips of it, right? right. It's hard to kill people. It's really difficult to kill people. Uh, it takes mental toughness for them to stand in front of that paintball and get shot in the uh, in, in the in the balls or whatever. So these yeah. are – you know, that, that's – they're a little insane. I got that. But it's still mental toughness and they keep doing it. Now they do it for a reason. They make money, et cetera, et cetera. I got that. It's not the same thing as what we're doing here, but you get the idea. This mental toughness, how far can I go? You know, can you go up the next hill? Where, where, when someone tells you to move underweight, right, on your back, an unknown distance, and you got to move as fast and as far as you can, you just you just keep going, right? But that's in your head. You know, how much pain can you take? It's Lance Armstrong used to talk about it, uh, going up the, uh, the Pyrenees. You know, how much pain 
are you willing to accept? And that's a huge part of the mindset, without a doubt. You know, can you you can go and be prepared physically. You can be prepared. Uh, I trained this way. I trained this hard. I trained all these things. I'm I'm ready for the the rucksack under my on my back for X amount of miles. I'm ready to do the five mile run. I'm ready to do the two mile APFT run. I'm ready to do all these things. Okay, but you know, do you have the mental toughness to keep going? And I, and it fits in really with your other question about the the pressure on the force. You know, how long can you go? How long can you go? Well, really, it's up to you. You know, recently there was a there was a show called The Selection on History. It was at History Channel, I think uh, it was History Channel. Yeah, was it History? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it was. Yeah, and you know what? It wasn't. I I I kind of enjoyed it. It was it was a kind of hokey to a degree, maybe, but um, it's you're taking these people that have never done anything like this, or even not even really with the end statement of being prepared to join other men or women and fight the enemy in combat. They're just doing it to see what they're made of, and uh, yeah. Like any selection program, you you start off with 40, you end up with two or three or four or five. That's it. Because they, the, only those people have the mental acuity to keep going when everyone else is falling. Uh, Rudyard Kipling comes to mind, right? The, uh, when all around you, when everyone all around you is falling down, but you can, you can maintain your cool when everyone's around you is, oh, that's, I'm, I'm misquoting him badly. I'm sure if he's rolling over his grave right now, but <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a great poem. And he said, when you can keep your head when all around have lost theirs, you you know, you can be the man. So, right. and that, that's really it, man. So it, I, you got to want it. You got to want, I'll go back to that corny statement I said again, but um, to be in the worst possible places under the worst possible conditions with the best possible people. I desired that. I wanted that. Was there times where I didn't want to go to work? Damn straight, man. God right. bless. I'm tired. Yeah. My, you know, my wife's giving me a hard time. Or the kids are this or the washing machine's broken. Um, but guess what? I got to go in and make the donuts. You know, it's time to go to work. So there was plenty of times I'd be going to bed at eight o'clock at night and getting up at uh, four o'clock in the morning uh, to, get, to get my work on. So it just it's it really depends on you. Um, it's you fighting you uh, and injuries. Yeah, the, my first injury was uh, was almost catastrophic. It was significant for sure. Uh, I had a broken neck. I broke my jaw and I lost six teeth uh, wow. when a piece piece of metal struck my face. Is this was this the training accident? Or? Yeah, it was a training accident. Yeah, we're training for combat and uh, we were utilizing a new device, really, and uh, we were experimenting with it, which was not wrong. Huh? And uh, piece of metal came back, smashed me in my face. And this is what happened. But, wow. but my leadership was smart enough to say, Hey, this is the carry needs. This is what he has to do to get better. Let's, let's do that and get him, you know, get him back in the fight. Uh, one of the first things I said, uh, after my cancer was, Hey, when can I put my rucksack back on? You know, when can I get back to work? I need to get back to work. You know, um, so you, mindset one, and the way that we deal with injuries nowadays as a force, we're much smarter than we used to be. Right. We understand the longevity of the long war. We do. We have more assets now than we ever used to. You know, we have assets that we have uh, for uh, ability to get the API involved, which they don't call it that anymore, whatever it is. But trainers who understand human uh, physiology and and repair and what it takes to, to do that, to get back into repair. You know, we had... Yeah, man, I remember we had great uh, orthopedic surgeons. You know, we had access to all that kind of thing. Right. Now, does the, the entire force of uh, all the forces of the United States have access to all this? No, not necessarily. Uh, but we are getting smarter no matter what. And the idea is really to come down from from the top, from Special Operations Command. They really filter down through right. and they end up getting to regular uh, regular line folks. So. Anyways, yeah, I hope that answers your question. I probably prattled on, prattled on for more than you want us. So. <laughs> no, that's, that's that's all right, man. It's um, you know, uh, you know, kind of doubling back quickly. Um, what's kind of interesting about the uh, the SEAL Team show is, from what I understand, uh, all of the consultants for the show are from the Army Special Operations world, which is kind of interesting and weird. I don't know. Well, it's, I I guess I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, it makes the show. I, like I said, I've only seen one or two episodes. Um, I, I'm glad. I hope so. Let's make it more realistic, I guess. As long as – here's the biggest thing to me. 
John. Are we, and never, here, before I go farther into the question, I'll give you a statement. Never ever underestimate the enemy's ability to Google. Uh, he's watching all of our techniques, tactics, and procedures. You think he's not? We're wrong. You know, never underestimate the enemy. That's right. all. It all goes back to Sun Tzu and von Clausewitz. Never ever underestimate the enemy. You know, we I think we underestimated the enemy in Vietnam for sure. Yeah. I don't believe we underestimated the enemy in uh, in in the Pacific War or the European Theater War. Although maybe a little bit in the in the Pacific War in the beginning. Uh, you know, it was hard to understand the Japanese zeal, the whole the whole idea of uh, the their whole mindset is escaping right now. Obviously, the Germans were were Nazis and they had an interesting mindset in themselves. But the uh, the uh, Japanese mindset was uh, was full of zeal, obviously. Right. Anyways, the, we just don't underestimate everybody. That's all. And then we, I, if, if we're giving up TTPs. You know, it's probably a, probably not a good idea. So right, right, okay. Um, so, would you be able to share maybe uh, you know a, a deployment story? Uh, you know, with the audience. Um, you know, you can be as you know as vague as possible. If if that's possible, is that okay? Uh, we I think we talked about this a little bit in the past, and it's just it's hard for me to I think to do a whole story i can tell you i think little things that that are funny i, I would <laughs> there are so many funny strange things i i think that I, I would i tell you now i would if i wrote a book it would be i would write a book about these things that happened that were so strange nobody would believe it anyway <laughs> uh and that's that was one of the things that that i talked about recently with somebody but um let's see i i instead of sharing a a, a story in particular I will tell you that when I, again, reiterating, when I say the worst possible places, best possible people, um, it happens daily. You know, it just happens daily. Um, I remember guys going after a bad guy during a vehicle interdiction and the body bomber, you know, hiding in the woods until hiding in the, nobody can see him, not even the ISR platform until you know, all these operators are, surrounding him and then he, he blows himself up and everybody narrowly escapes um uh you know a complete room of bad guys all with their hands up ready to be frisked and taken down but that one dude all of a sudden uh operator sees that he's got uh an s-vest tied to a, a tiny string of filament and a, on a thumb ring as he extends his hands all the way to the surrender position and the and the whole house blows up and wow. you know this it's just the whole you know helicopter crashes so let me see i've been in, i've been i've been involved in four of them wow. so and and you people say well you know it's, but you don't hear about any of that stuff on the tv you, you know, of course you're not going to hear that you right. even significant events you really don't hear about but just to just to let everyone know that decisions have to be made immediately uh sometimes in bad ways and, you know, it's always difficult to swim through everything to be, I don't know how to put that. It's just difficult for the, for everybody concerned on the ground. You have to swim through all this stuff, come out clean on the other end. Okay, good. Everybody survived. We're happy. Uh, you know, when, when these guys in the, on the battlefield watch their mates be put on aircraft with the, uh, the term expectant going on. And, and I don't know what everybody knows that term, but once you put somebody on a, extraction platform and you say he's expected where you expect him to die and uh you know it's 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 names it's it's objective names it's people's names it's blood sweat toil it's uh it's hard work man and it's just uh like i said instead of sharing a story just to know that these guys and girls but mostly men of course work so hard out there on the edge Right. And uh, they're always putting it out there, man. And you, these people, I, I, I this, like this one kid, you know, he's 17 years old, calls me up. And um, so I'm saying, hey, congratulations. I'm saying, God bless you, bro. You strapping it on. Anybody who straps it on right now, you know, he knows he's, he's going to see combat sometime. Uh, you know, he's he's got my favor. And I saw an old man the other day in, a, in the gym. He had a jumper, he had a Fort Benning Airborne 
school shirt on. And I said, you jump out of airplanes? He said, oh, no, not me. It's my son. He's in Fort Bragg. He's been here for two years now, 82nd ever. And I said, well, congratulations. And, you know, thanks for your service, too, as, as a dad, you know, to push that out there. So, these, you know, even if it's a kid jumping out of airplanes or, you know, it's that operator on the on the edge taking down a, a building during CQB, it's just – all that stuff is uh, it's none of it's easy for them and their families, and it's just uh, you know hats off to all them guys. But there you have it. There's my story. So it's not a story, but <laughs> yeah, so good. Um, so you know, uh, recently, uh, you know, four was it three Green Berets were killed in Africa, and one support guy. Yes, sir. Um, and you know, it's in you know, kind of today's media world. People are, are uh, people pay attention to, in, in my opinion, kind of the, the wrong things. Um, you know, you made a joke about uh, before we got on about you don't watch the Kardashians, uh, but a lot of people do, and sure. um, you know, a lot of people just, in my opinion, just don't pay attention to things that are important. And um, so when when uh, you know when the news broke that that these these guys were ambushed or or they ended up in a situation where you know four guys were killed in combat in uh in niger in africa i was expecting people to kind of be surprised at that you know what's the u.s doing there um what kind of annoyed me was to see um members of congress who are on the the uh the security committees i i don't i forget the exact names but uh you know they were on uh you know one of the news channels and they were, you know, demanding to know why U.S. troops were in Africa, and I'm like, people who don't who don't have security clearances know the U.S. is operating in places like Africa. Uh, you know, how do you guys not know that? Um, yeah. So, and and then you know, like I said, just people just in general, and I kind of expected that were were surprised by that. Um, can we just and and I think people just don't realize, you know, when we say. GWAT, the GWAT stands for the Global War on Terror. And, you know, I said before that some of these groups are loosely aligned or some of them have uh, really close alliances. But it's it's really the the ideology that they share uh, is what they have the most in common. And um, it, it's a global threat. It isn't just in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, so can we just kind of talk about that a little bit? Some of the, 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 the other kind of threats, you know, stuff in Africa and stuff like that. I will. And I don't know. Um, I would submit to you, I don't know as much about uh, what happens and the goings on in Africa as I might know in Southwest Asia. But don't, for the, the casual observer, don't, don't think of Africa as a secondary interest. It's not. We can't, we can't cede this space to China. And there's other players as well, right? They can't, we can't have them deepen their economic ties and their political ties. And then what happens then? The U.S. loses out. We lose opportunities. Or, you know, is this what did I hear? Uh, I was observing some some folks talking. Is there a is there a, a land grab or a power grab or a, a uh, economic issue? Is there what what are the grabs here that that makes Africa important? Um, well, firstly, without a doubt. Don't underestimate China and other players to get in there and grab stuff. Uh, now, what is that stuff? It could be just sympathetic political ties. Uh, and that's just easy enough, right? It, you know, far too many people think that Africa is a secondary importance to U.S. interest, where in reality, it really is really important to U.S. security. I can tell you that for sure. Uh, not only do you talk about the spread of transnational threats, you have terrorism, you have pandemics, et cetera, et cetera. But Africa has to become stable, right? We've, we as the West has been pushing millions and millions of dollars in Africa for such a long time. And most of it's, sorry, most of it is welfare, uh, honestly. And then you, you talked just now about the threat of the, so the GWAT threat. So I don't even think the United States government calls it the global war on terror anymore. It doesn't matter. Um, oh, really? I had no idea. Yeah, no. Well, during the, during the Obama administration, they called it, uh, Oh, what did they call it? Uh, they changed the name. It was uh, other than overseas crisis or something. It was overseas crisis of some sort. It wasn't uh, global war on terrorism. Uh, 
Okay. But that terrorism itself, the the term terrorism itself is is, is okay to say nowadays. It's all right. Uh, excuse me. But uh, let's see. So you have Al Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb, uh, the Berbers, Bedouins, uh, the Toregs, all that stuff spreads from northern Africa all the way down through Mali uh, and Mauritania. You have Al Shabaab. Uh, yeah. Another Islamic uh, group of men on, and that's, what's the uh, term? The term for the, the Brotherhood, right? Al Shabaab, yeah. all through Ethiopia, uh, all through all, all through there. So, you know, certainly there's terrorists. They're all through there. Uh, and what are they trafficking? The human trafficking, uh, geopolitical issues, whatnot. But if we don't remain actively engaged, providing not only humanitarian assistance like we already do, but also uh, you know, we have to promote economic growth. We have to pr- promote safety. So you see the the real special forces mission anyway is to be involved in other countries, teach their men how to use these weapons, how to be organized. And then, of course, you're looking after their populace as well through economic or so, sorry, through welfare assistance. Right. And then promoting economic growth. But you have special forces on the ground that are doing medical stuff. You have special forces on the ground doing engineers. The engineers are building bridges, building schools. Uh, so, again, all this, we have to maintain it. In turn, if it doesn't happen, we open the door for other nations like China to strengthen their foothold in Africa. China already has and already actively engaged in providing funds to many African nations. And I'm yeah. telling you what, there's there's signs. You go to the air, airports, some of these airports, there's Chinese signs in there. So yeah. they're – they're trying to get footholds in there as well. Um, there's a uh, Fox News analyst who's an Intel guy. His name was uh, – why can't I think of his name right now? Uh, I cannot believe I can't think of his name right now. He wrote a book called The War in 2020. Uh, Ralph Peters. Okay, Ralph Peters, yeah. Uh, yeah, tough guy, uh, tough Intel guy. I like his. I like him a lot. The War in 2020 really is about um, – there's a lot about Africa in there. Now, or what is what we're talking about right now what the book is talking about? No, it doesn't matter. But his vision of Africa being a main sticking point in the geopolitical struggles of large countries such as America, China, and the European nations, it's a real deal, you know? So let's not, let's not screw around and let's stay involved in that. Right. I think, I don't know if I answered all of it, but (laughs) it might be the limit of my knowledge. (laughs) No, no, it's, it's worth, uh, bringing you know China into the the, the discussion, uh, you know because they are they're actively uh, trying to you know win over influence and 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 from what I I can tell, um, I think they try and counter U.S. influence where they can. You bet. Um, you know wherever it is around the globe, and you know while we are actively fighting against um, this ideology. With these these terrorist groups, you know, all around the world, Southeast Asia, Africa, Middle East, you know, there is there's always that that kind of threat, I guess you can say, of you know the Chinese government and in some ways as well, you know, the Russian government. Um, you know, it's, I'm not sure if you know anything about like the, you know South China Sea and what's going on over there, but that's just kind of another example of China trying to expand their influence and. Um, you know, counter U.S. influence where they can. You bet. Hegemony. Why not? Right. You're you're a great nation. Why not expand your uh, your world? Right. That's what they're trying to do. Hey, one one other thing, too, I forgot to mention, too. So. The African nation itself, African votes, they make up more than a quarter of the votes in the United Nations. Shocker. So, oh, yeah, yeah. So think about that. If we think about that, then why wouldn't we continue to bolster our partnership with these African nations? You know, so you know, it's vital not only to U.S. security, but uh, also the United States and European allies as well. You got a migration crisis. You got all kinds of other stuff coming out of there. So. Oh yeah, yeah. Europe is is um, they, they got hit a little bit. Um, I, I think, you know, not to get too political, but. I think people try and do what they think is 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 right, you know, and kind of help people. But I think we're starting to see some of that backfire in in some countries in Europe. Um, you know, whether they had, you know, I, I think they had good intentions in in what they were doing or allowing, so to speak. Um, but I, I think some of it is kind of backfiring. Oh yeah, it, 
It can. It will. You know, we're, we're not going to do the right. Hopefully we'll do the right thing all the time. But, you know, we're going to make missteps along the way, too. We're not perfect either. But uh, in the end, it's it's smart to stay there, to get these countries secure on their own feet economically, help them with uh, whatever special forces assistance we can. And then, of course, hunting down HVTs. Uh, and groups of, of bad guys like a- AQIM and uh, the Shabab. So that's my two cents. So, you know, being in, in special operations for as long as you have been, um, you know, obviously, you know, you don't want to go into much details about it. But can you talk about some of the specialties you've had and it's like some of the, the um, or, or maybe like some of the schools you went to? Is that something you could talk about? Yeah, sure. There's no... Uh, no secrets there. I, um, I get, uh, geez, the list is long, I guess. Uh, in, in the end, uh, uh, you know, as a, as a, as an armorman, you know, as an armor crewman, uh, you go through the armor schools and whatnot, like stuff like that. I got to see, uh, uh, I got to work with the 18th Royal Irish Hussars in the, in the English army. So I got to work around the chieftains and chieftain tanks and, and got to run over buses and got to work with uh, different cavalry units and infantry units across uh, Europe. I got to go to East Berlin. I got to go to Checkpoint Charlie even before the wall came down. And that was, oh, nice. uh, was very special for me. I thought that was uh, amazing. Actually, we did did operations right there in Berlin. There was a training area in Berlin, and we were uh, spied upon by Soviet military liaison missions and uh, – you know, looked at by East German guards all the time. So it was pretty cool. And then you had to go over to Checkpoint Charlie. You had to be in your dress green uniform. They don't have dress greens anymore, but uh, they, they use a blue uniform now. But you had to go over in your dress green uniform. And I was able to go from West Berlin, which looked like a colorful area, a colorful place you'd want to be. And you'd cross Checkpoint Charlie and you'd go to Kansas like Dorothy did. And all of a sudden it would be black and white. I swear to you. It was. <laughs> it was. It was drab clothing. It was drab advertisements or no advertisements, uh, you know, capitalism, you can see suffered there, but it was, that was a very interesting part of my career. Um, and then Ranger life and, uh, schools, you know, I did infantry. So I had armor and infantry under my belt now. So, uh, did some sniper work, uh, of course, uh, seer school, which is survival, evasion, resist, and escape. I went through, uh, three or four different kinds of seer schools. Uh, those are always fantastic schools. If you could, if you could go back and do some of those, I'd do them again. Really? Uh, yeah, oh yeah, they were absolutely fantastic. The stuff you learn from the CRC school is, uh, it's, uh, invaluable. The other, the other CR schools are really important too. They're just, they're just different. Um, Ranger school, of course, is a, a test of, really is a, a test of yourself. How long can you go? How far can you go? How much, how far can you go on very little sleep and very little food? I went in the wintertime, so it snowed on us in, uh, in the desert. It snowed on us in Dahlonega. Uh, the class I was in, actually, uh, three rangers uh, succumbed to uh, hypothermia and died in the swamp. Oh, wow. Uh, it was a significant event for a ranger school then. Um, and uh, jungle warfare schools. I've been to driving schools. I've been to shooting schools. I've... I've, I've uh, I've done hand-to-hand combat along some very special people, including Hoist and Oriol and Gracie. Wow. I know some some people know who they are. Yeah. Uh, uh, man, I, I, it's it's been a fantastic journey for me, and uh, you know, land navigation, driving, parachuting, free fall. You know, you exit an airplane out at twenty-five thousand feet, you can see the curvature of the Earth uh, when the sun's come up, and it's just. Uh, you can't you can't get much closer to God Almighty right there right. unless yeah. you unless you get unless you get shot at. So, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's absolutely fantastic, you know. And I, I would never trade anything. I've, I've, of course, we have I've lost men in combat and good friends of mine right next to me, and and um, it's been uh, a fantastic journey. Although it's it's been filled with hard times and, and great times. I I the the time that uh, I spent during. Uh, the surge, if you will, 2005-2006 in the western Euphrates River Valley was Dickens-like. I mention it all the time. If we talk about this whole time, it was Dickens-like to me. And it was, if you know the the first line of Charles Dickens and uh, Tale of Two Cities, 
he says it was the worst of times and it was the best of times. And I, I submit to you that a lot of my military deployment deployed career was like that. Even even non-deployed career, you know, because like like that Navy SEAL's wife guy says uh, or she says, you know, even when you're here, you're not here. The trials and tribulations of a of a deployed soldier, whether he's in the Big Red One or he's in Special Operations Command, you know, it's not an easy life. Um, and uh, it's, it's difficult, but the, I wouldn't change any of it. I really wouldn't change it. I, I it all what it, it what it's what makes you who you are. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I I look back and I'm I'm happy with the way things turned out. I, I there's a couple of things down the road I wish probably were different. A couple of good friends of mine. I, of course, I wish we were still here, but uh, you know, in the end, uh, it's been uh, it's been a wonderful ride. Awesome. So let, let's um let's talk about your, your company. Uh, what's the name of your company? Uh, I am DCM Consulting LLC. We do business as DCM Consulting USA, which doesn't even have a website up. Uh, we <laughs> I had it going on and then uh, just kind of fizzled out. I had trouble with uh, Squarespace and some of the. And you know anybody out there that can do uh, uh, web work uh, for not for cheap cheap, but you know, reasonable. Let me know. <laughs> I, yeah, actually, um, I, I might have a guy for you, actually. <laughs> okay. So I need to, I need to do that. I need to fill up my 2018 calendar. But right now, I'm, I'm uh, bouncing back and forth from. Uh, I'm, I'm currently in Texas. I'm doing some work here. I'm heading to Saudi Arabia, and uh, we're, we're, I competed for a contract there, and I won that. I've actually only competed for two large contracts, and I'm two for two right now. So nice. I, that luck was that luck will not hold out. I'm sure of it. <laughs> uh, I, I plan to train marksmanship to a, a bunch of guys in uh, Special Operations Command later on. I've already done that through other companies, but on top of that, I'm, I'm working with the International Tactical Officers Training Association here in uh, in America. I'm, I'm working for other great companies too, like uh, the Schaefer Security Group. I'm working with CTG. I'm working with Deco. Uh, I'm, I'm a freelancer, sort of like a vagabond, and I bounce around. And uh, I, I, the biggest thing for me, John, is I want to be able to help men going to combat, getting ready to go to combat. That's the the. I came back from uh, I was in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. I I did five days of uh, the same course every day, Monday through Friday. We trained about 95 guys, um, and it was just helping these men out and some women. Uh, be a gunfighter on the street for, for Cape Girardeau, Missouri, you know, to be better suited to, uh, to do the job on the street. You know, it's, you know, to just get them to like Larry Vicker says, you know, get them to know that this pistol you got or this rifle, it doesn't take, but a little bit of maintenance and some knowledge on how it works to make you a better gunfighter. Um, and I just try to install that, that, that part of leadership that I give is that, that tribal mindset, that warrior uh, ethos, that it's okay, guess what? You are a gunfighter, whether you're a, an armed service personnel going into the, the fight, you got a gun, you better know you're a gunfighter, or you're a police officer on the street, you're a gunfighter, I got it. You have, to, you have a different ROE to deal with, but you are indeed a gunfighter, and you have to know what you're doing with that thing, that thing in your pants. So, um. That's what we're doing right now. The, the the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia deal is a dog thing. We, I, uh, I've worked with Special Operations Canines for a long time, and uh, we're going to train some dogs in Saudi Arabia, and it's going to be a hoot. Awesome. Yeah, the, the the whole um, you know, canine program, like implementation of it, the last couple of years is is um, you know, I've talked to different dog handlers uh, from all kind of levels in special operations, and um, uh really a unique capability and, and kind of a invaluable service that they provide. It is absolutely amazing. And once, you know, it's hard to get people to come on board too. You know, okay, we see an opportunity to do this. Okay. Let's make it happen. So we start doing it and then it's like, okay, this is what I want to do. Oh no, no, you can't, you're not going to put this dog in close quarter battle. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's what we want to do. Oh no. Oh no. And now, You'd be hard pressed to find a bunch of guys that come up to the door and saying, "Hey, where's that dog?" You'd be hard pressed to find that they don't exist. There, you, right. Most guys say, "Hey, I want that dog. Where's the dog? I want him going upstairs. I want him going downstairs. I want him in the bunker first. I want him. I, I want him going through there first. You know, and one of the 
funny things we used to say about him. He, he was a so you know these guys out here know what a flashbang is. So you know the flashbang comes off somebody's back, pull the pin, spoon flies, and you throw it in the room, and it and it blows up. It's non-lethal, but it makes a distraction. The dog is like a flashbang with teeth, and he's reusable. Once yeah. you use a flashbang, you can't use it again. Right. Uh, the dog goes in, you know, super dark. He's hard to see. He's super low. He's super fast, uh, and he can strike a target and then continue to move, strike another target on your direction. And he's a big distractor with teeth. And, you know, in, in, the, in the case of the Islamic jihadists in particular, they're not fond of dogs. Right. They don't dig the dog. And uh, he's, it's super terrifying. And that's a psychological weapon in its own. So they're a fantastic beast, man. They're, it's just an amazing thing to watch them be able to push you out of the way to get to a bad guy. And uh, we've seen that over and over again. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a labor of love, though, without a doubt. You, it's uh, on top of all your other duties. You're going to handle a dog and take care of him because he's a living, breathing tool. It's not like you can take your rifle, you put it up in the lockup, right. and you're done with that. Um, dog's a different story. He's got to be cared for. And, so. uh, recently, um, HBO put out a documentary called War Dog. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I am familiar with it. Uh, I talked to the folks from HBO before they made that. So okay. I don't. I had no credit to that. No, don't get me wrong. I have no credit to any of that. But they, they spoke with me, I would say, five years ago now uh, when they were thinking about putting it together. And they chose some good people, though, to uh, represent. And yeah. uh, some of that's pretty powerful, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's like um, I, I was able to, to view a screening of it before it came out. Um, you know, I, I had one of the handlers on the podcast. And um, it's because you're a powerful, influential person <laughs> in the media, right? Yeah, right. Um, you, you you interviewed Dave, right? Yeah, yeah, Dave Newsom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Dave and Pepper. Yep, yep. Yeah, so they, they were they did a good job, and uh, that's a funny story about Pepper. I actually uh, picked Pepper out of all the uh, the dogs that we were selecting that day, so it really? was fun. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I, I told I, her to jump up here, and she jumped up on my arms. She it was the first <laughs> first time that ever happened. I was a little, I was almost almost a little nervous. I go, oh. <laughs> she jumped up right in my arms, man. It was just one of those funny things. But yeah, he did a great job with her, and uh, and uh, they made an impact on uh, on the battlefield for sure. Yeah, and, and I think, um, you know, as, as far as the documentary goes, it was uh, it was really raw. You know, like we, I remember watching it, and it's like everybody in the room was like, you know, blowing their nose and. Uh, <laughs> You know, it got, it's got dusty in there. Got dusty yeah. the <laughs> onions. Um, <laughs> onions. But yeah, I, I think they did a great job, and it just it, it kind of reminds people, you know, of the sacrifice that uh, you know canines are 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 making uh, on the battlefield alongside of you know elite uh, elite operators. It's uh the it's funny, man. The story is it's uh it's kind of it's kind of crazy. It's kind of almost unbelievable. They have a it's it's a it's a harder washout rate even for them. It's uh, they're uh, but they go through the same kind of things that the humans do without a doubt to be picked. You got to pick through, comb through, do a bunch of testing, then you pick them, and even then, only a small percentage of them pass. You know, I, I remember one one trip we purchased. We looked at. I bet, tell you what, brother, we probably looked at uh, two hundred dogs, um, certainly one hundred fifty dogs. We came back with maybe five. And if one gets selected, then you're you're happy. Wow. And that's that's the washout rate for these guys. And it's not easy at all. Pepper was one of the few females. Um, so when I say guys, uh, dogs. But uh, they're a special, special animal. And it's hard. You know, you, you they're, they're already, most of them already come packaged with a bunch of commands and a bunch of discipline. They already come with uh, stuff on them. Sort of like. If you were in the range of battalion and you picked a kid from 82nd Airborne to come on over or right. infantry, whatever, he already has infantry skills, right? He can shoot a rifle, he can shoot a pistol a little bit, he can shoot, move, communicate a little bit, he can do some pull ups. Uh, but has he ridden on a helicopter? Has he fast roped? Has he climbed ice? Has he done uh, CQB? Has he, you know, been quiet for four hours in an ambush? five hours, maybe even 10, whatever, you know, has he done all these other high speed things as he jumped from an airplane? And that's what happens. These dogs come with a certain core amount of knowledge. And then, and then you put all this extra stuff on them and quite often they can't take it. 
just like the, the human. He can't do it either. He's got to he's got to go on and go back to the big red one or 101st or whatever. Dogs are the same way. They can do so much, and then you know you find a gem that can do it all, and it can still he's good with it, and uh, that's what you want. It's hard to find them. Right, and and like you know how you said you, you'll pick a certain number of dogs, and then only out that small number, you know you'll be happy if one makes it. Those other dogs do you know for them to get to that point? Do you do you, or or does the um you know the, the military or, or whoever's running the show feel like the point that even though they didn't make it to where you guys wanted them, they'd still be fit for some kind of service, like maybe at a, a police department or something. It's exactly right. Yeah, they, they're all fit. And you, you, you may have talked to Dave about this, or you may have talked to, to Freddie about this too. Same thing that they are worth something. You bet. They, they just can't make the final grade. You know. So, what's going to happen is they'll go off to work real hard in a police officer's uh, unit or something like that. Right. Okay. Uh, pretty awesome. So, um, so do you? So for your company, do you guys? trained civilians or you you specifically work with uh, pds and uh, military i would love to say that we work with everybody but we really don't have we worked with civilians yes so well i guess my sing-song mantra might be you know we work with military and law enforcement personnel along with some exceptional americans so yeah and, it, and i would love to branch out and work with some civilians in the basic pistol and basic rifle uh, for instance, I had a conversation with a guy just a couple of weeks ago that uh, he said, well, I see these guys coming, these guys, I see these people coming out of a concealed carry class. And he said, I wouldn't want to even see them with a gun in their hand. They're terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so he said, why don't we want, because before you get a driver's license, you have to drive, right? Right. Right. So he's like, hey, before they get the concealed carry license, Shouldn't they have to shoot a little bit before they get that? So he'd like to see, you know, a guy set up a course, manufacture a, a clinic, if you will, to to help these pre-concealed carry shooters know their gun, know their gun, know how to work it, know how to shoot, when to shoot, how to shoot, you know, before they take this course. And, you know, maybe something we're looking into here shortly. Awesome. Awesome. So if, if anyone's interested in contacting you for – uh, you know, maybe setting up some training, uh, a lot of military, ex-military or police uh, personnel listen to the podcast. Uh, where can they do it? Is it like an email or something? Yeah, you, right now, uh, via the IG page, we don't do Facebook. Uh, DCM Consulting does not do Facebook. We do IG, and right now only IG. Um, sadly, right, I probably need to expand my, my focus. Uh, we're just not there yet, but uh, dcmconsultingusa.com soon enough that'll be uh, up and <laughs> there'll be a calendar where you can apply for different courses throughout the uh, the 2018 years we start blocking them off but again like I said this uh, Saudi Arabian thing coming up and actually it might be in Switzerland uh, after that so it's it's we have to I'm gonna have to figure out what portions of the calendar I need to black out so I can do some courses but long long story short yes dcmconsultingusa.com should be up relatively soon. If not, uh, right on the IG page is ways to communicate with me, just like that 17-year-old did. Uh, the phone number's there. The uh, My email address is there as well. So uh, I am reachable via the IG page. And, and the IG page, yeah, the IG, ah, I can't speak. The IG page is uh, Chris Dutch Moyer, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, is it? Hold on, let me, let me double check. So I know my own IG page. <laughs> sad business right there. Let's see here. Uh, we got. <laughs> it's Dutch Chris Moyer. Dutch Chris it's, Moyer. It's Dutch go. Chris Moyer. Yeah. So that's my IG page. So yeah, that. Right now, what are we at? Forty three hundred. That's nice. And we just started. Really, everything on that page too. Really, is just about my life and related subjects. So even from the beginning, the first post I ever made was was my logo, and the uh, the next couple posts were about vehicles which i dearly love four by four stuff and, and some of the guys we trained and some of the rifles and weapons that i own and then as it goes on it just talks about my journey throughout and you know talk, it talks concealment it talks about some of the companies i'm working with there's a couple of cool videos in there i have a youtube channel uh, 
So you can access all that from there. But that's, uh, you know, we're, we're baby steps starting out new. I don't, I'm not, you know, one of, my, one of my partners said, hey, you know, wait a minute. You, we want to expand your scope and, you know, give you more access to other stuff. But would you want to remain uh, quiet? And I go, well, it's just, that's just me. So okay. I'll. I'll sacrifice on that. That's, that's, that's how it's going to be. I'm not, a, I don't, I'm not a big talker. Uh, although I'd talk to you for like an hour, but I'm not, uh, I don't, I don't get out there and strut my feathers. All right. Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, I appreciate you coming on to do this. Um, you know, it's really an honor to be able to sit here and talk to you. No, um, thanks very much, man. Hey, what's funny with what a lot of people don't know is, uh, we've been trying to do this for like half a year now. And we <laughs> <laughs> finally came together. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like I said, it was great to be able to talk to you. Um, you know, I know the audience is going to appreciate uh, hearing from someone like yourself, you know, all the experience you have and, and uh, things that you've done for this country. And uh, so I want to thank you for coming on and I want to thank you for your service as well. well. Thank you very much, John. And I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, there's there's more stories back there somewhere. So when you get bored, you got nothing to do. Just call me up. We'll do it yeah. again. <laughs> all right, cool. Thank you. All right. Cheers, man. Someday, Liz, I'll go back, said Private First Class Peter Robert Zanetta of the 37th Engineer Combat Battalion and first assault wave to hit Omaha Beach. I'll go back and I'll see it all again. I'll see the beach, the barricades and the graves. Those words of Private Zanatta come to us from his daughter, Lisa Zanatta Hen, in a heart-rending story about the event her father spoke of so often. She tells some of his stories of World War II, but says of her father, the story to end all stories was D-Day. He made me feel the fear of being on that boat waiting to land. I could smell the ocean and feel the seasickness. I can see the looks on his fellow soldiers' faces, the fear, the anguish, the uncertainty of what lay ahead. And when they landed, I can feel the strength and courage of the men who took those first steps through the tide to what must have surely like, looked like instant death. And like all the families of those who went to war, she describes how she came to realize her own father's survival was a miracle. So many men died. I know that my father watched many of his friends be killed. I know that he must have died inside a little each time. Lisa Zanata Hen began her story by quoting her father who promised that he would return to Normandy. She ended with a promise to her father who died eight years ago of cancer. I'm going there, Dad. And I'll see the beaches and the barricades and the monuments. I'll see the graves and I'll put flowers there just like you wanted to do. I'll feel all the things you made me feel through your stories and your eyes. I'll never forget what you went through, Dad, nor will I let anyone else forget. And Dad, I'll always be proud. Through the words of his loving daughter, who is here with us today, a D-Day veteran has shown us the meaning of this day far better than any president can. It is enough for us to say about Private Zanatta and all the men of honor and courage, we will always remember. We will always be proud. We will always be prepared so we may be always free.